0: Coming up next on Upstate's HealthLink on Air, we'll learn about the importance of the specialty of neuro oncology. You cannot
1: treat your brain the same way you treat anywhere else in the body. It has very special um, circumstances and special considerations that require a bit different approach.
0: And we'll talk about heart failure, how it's diagnosed and treated, and the ways you can reduce your risk.
1: One of the reasons that
2: people get heart failure is from long-standing high blood pressure. Some people are prone to high blood pressure through genetics, um, but a lot of it can be managed with lifestyle change too. Watching what you eat, um, especially eating low fat, low cholesterol, and low sodium foods um, definitely can help control blood pressure.
0: All that, plus a visit from The Healing Muse, right after the news. This is Upstate Medical University's HealthLink on Air, your chance to explore health, science, and medicine with the experts from Central New York's only academic medical center. I'm your host, Amber Smith. Today, we'll talk with a nurse and educator about what it's like to live with heart failure. But first, the new director of neuro oncology at Upstate explains why specialized care is important for anyone with a tumor of the brain or spine. From Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York, I'm Amber Smith. This is HealthLink on Air. If you or someone you care about has a brain tumor, we're going to talk today about why it's important to receive specialized medical care. My guest is Dr. Ruham Nusani. She's an assistant professor at Upstate who is the medical director of the neurooncology program, and she's one of just 260 certified neurooncologists in the United States. Welcome to HealthLink on Air, Dr. Nusani.
1: Thank you so much. Thank you for having me.
0: Now, neurooncology would cover any tumor that starts in the brain or the spine, right?
1: That is correct. It's any tumor that involves the brain or the spine, whether it starts there or it gets there from somewhere else.
0: So are all of these tumors assumed to be caused by cancer, or would you potentially be treating someone who has a tumor that's not cancer?
1: So so that that is a good question tumors by by definition are masses right so we're talking about a lesion in the brain or the spine um that is that is a mass whether it's a benign tumor or a cancerous tumor we keep an eye on both the majority of them are cancerous but even the benign ones i do see and follow to make sure they stay that way
0: and then you could potentially, you said, if they if they migrate there for like it would be a cancer that spread somewhere else in the body, but then some of it spread to the brain or spine.
1: Correct. So that's you hear a lot of you know a lot of women with breast cancer or people and patients with lung can with lung cancer or melanoma, which is a, a type of skin cancer that's um, an aggressive one. So these are. Um, kind of like the top three kinds of cancer that do go to the brain. You hear that a lot with these patients in the past. You know, you we used to think of these as, you know, terminal cases, which is not the case anymore. However, they they require very specialized care, and that's a big proportion of what I actually do in the kinds of patients I see.
0: So if someone is diagnosed with a tumor in their brain or their spine, why would you say that it's important to seek care not just from an oncologist, but from a neuro oncologist?
1: Correct. So, I I always um, put it that way. So, medical oncology has been around for for many many years, and at this doctors are the experts on doing chemo and treating those treatments. However, I always say the brain is a special place. The brain and the spine are a very special place. They're very protected um, from anything that happens around the body. It's, and that includes the treatments that we do for these cancers. Um, so having a well, I try to look at myself as your hybrid. I'm an oncologist who can do your chemo and do your treatment, but I also understand the brain in a very specialized manner because I'm initially a neurologist. So these, you cannot treat your brain the same way you treat anywhere else in the body. Um, It has very special um, circumstances and special considerations that require a bit different approach, I would say.
0: So I've heard of uh, something described as a blood brain barrier. Is that sort of the special circumstance you're talking about?
1: Absolutely. So our brain is protected um, by the body from, from a lot of things with what you're talking about, the blood-brain barrier, is literally kind of like the gates to our brain. And those gates protect uh, our brains from infections, from toxins. And, you know, I know when we say toxins, we think of like toxins from the environment, but also chemo. Chemotherapy and chemo agents that can be very effective elsewhere in the body, um, in small doses, for example, they might not even reach your brain. So let's say somebody has lung cancer and they have brain lesions or brain mats that had spread from that lung cancer, a certain chemo that can control it in the lung might not even touch it in the brain. So we usually work as a collaboration in these circumstances with the oncologist. So I'll be the person who knows the brain, knows what gets to the brain, knows what to do with the brain, and work with the oncologist on how to tailor a treatment therapy that will treat the lung and the brain and not to neglect it. Um, After all, don't, you know, don't forget your brain controls everything. So you definitely cannot neglect it.
0: So that was going to be my next question. If someone already has an oncologist, I mean, they, they would keep that oncologist and also you'd be part of the team. The two of you would work together.
1: Absolutely. So I'll take a step back. Like I, as I said in the beginning, so let's say somebody has a glioblastoma or a glioma or any tumor that arises within the brain or the nervous system, then the, I will be that person's go-to or someone like me, a neuro-oncologist. So I will be someone who will treat their headaches and their seizures and whatever symptoms that are, they're having from their tumors, but also I'll be the one who gives them chemo. However, if their tumor is coming from somewhere else, from their lung or breast or skin or anywhere else in the body, they will still keep their oncologist who will be definitely more specialized in the lung, in the skin, in the um, breast, and I will work with them on having the best kind of overall care of the whole body.
0: Well, I know that some patients in central New York have had to travel great distances to see a neuro-oncologist. So the fact that you're here with this new neuro-oncology program at Upstate, that should reduce that need for a lot of people, right?
1: That is a hundred percent true. Um, I did my training in the city in Morris Long Catering, and I always said that it broke my heart to see patients travel four or five hours to seek um, this kind of specialized care. We're literally like our our program is going to be the only one in our catchment area, and we will see patients that didn't get didn't get the access to this kind of care. For many, many years. And the nearest centers are like all the way in Albany or the city. They're very far away.
0: This is Upstate's HealthLink on Air. I'm your host, Amber Smith, and I'm talking with the medical director of the neuro oncology program at Upstate, Dr. Ruham Nassani. So, in terms of treatment for neurological tumors, does, does it always involve surgery, radiation, chemo, or some combination?
1: So, the treatment usually is a combination of two or more of these things. Um, It depends on where they are in the brain, what kind of brain tumors they are, and where in the treatment are we. Um, This is usually a, a very complex decision that is made by the neuro oncologist in coordination with the radiation oncologist and the neurosurgeon. So our center that we're building here at Upstate uses these expertise. Upstate just also hired an amazing neurosurgeon who specializes in brain tumors as well. And we have a great radiation oncology team that has treated brain tumors for many, many years. So the decision becomes of what to do with the patient will be tailored for each patient, whether the tumor should or can be resected, and if not, should and can be radiated, and of course, chemotherapy or um, immunotherapy, or there's a lot of new treatments that we could do for these tumors that goes along with, with the you know, former two methods and works on preventing the tumor from coming back.
0: So it sounds like it's very individualized. Each patient is going to have a whole different course, perhaps. What In terms of um, new treatments, can you explain targeted therapy? And is that something that might come into play?
1: Absolutely. So I will start by saying that, that the standard of care treatments that we currently have for brain tumors aren't unfortunately the most successful ones. However, in the most recent years, a lot of talk had arisen on what we call the molecular profiling. That means what your actual tumors, genes do. So we look at these tumors and we look at the genes of these cells I always like to say, like, what made them super cells? How did they mutate and become these cancerous cells? This is actually, in particular, a a field that I'm very passionate about. So I like to look at these genes. Some of these genes, we still do not know how they work, but some we do. And some we have agents and, and therapies that go to that gene and target it. And that's why it's called targeted therapy versus using a chemotherapy that will go and work on the whole body, which is which can still be effective. It's just a different way of looking at the tumor and understanding how it works and fighting it in a certain way that is tailored just for that individual tumor.
0: And it seems to me, I mean, this field is exploding. If we don't have a treatment for it today, that doesn't mean we won't have one next year.
1: We're we're long overdue. I I definitely say that in the neuro oncology field, but the research has been enormous. Um I um I participated in a lot of these clinical trials um in, in my previous institution. We looked at these patients, at their tumors, at their genes, and what kind of genes they harbor, um, and we Try to tailor. And I will tell you that sometimes when we find these genes and we can get the right therapy for them, it makes a big difference.
0: Wow. Well, let me ask you because we've talked about sort of treating the tumors, but uh, in addition to needing a tumor to be treated, the tumor itself might cause some neurological symptoms because it's in the neurological system, it's in the brain or the spine. Do you, as a neuro-oncologist, it seems like you're well-positioned to deal with that as well.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, I I am a neurologist by training, you know, initially. Um, So our brain is very, you know, very unique, and each area in the brain will control a function. And no matter where the tumor is, it will affect a certain function. And My patient, I mean, everyone thinks their patients are special, but my patients are very special because even if sometimes the tumor is small and we can treat it, it can happen in an area that will affect their lives and they need the support through through that. And I am, as I said, like I am that hybrid because I know how to deal with these symptoms and how to get my patients through them um, being a neurologist.
0: Now, the field of neuro oncology is very specialized. I know you're one of just two hundred and sixty neuro oncologists who are certified in the u s Can you tell me why this field is is the one that you chose in medicine
1: yeah i um I always say that you know i i even as a medical student um you know it was sometimes hard to go and talk to patients and um but not not cancer patients cancer patients were always very um very interesting to me because they were most of the times 100% on the same team with the doctor and i loved that relationship i loved that we both worked together we had the same goal we were a team um so i i knew i wanted to be an oncologist for the patients And then a neurologist, I feel it's very elegant. It's very still a a field that requires examination. You still, you know, talk to your patients, touch your patients and have like actually examine them. But, you know, it's it's a very um, intimate relationship that I love so much.
0: So after medical school, how many more additional years of education did you have? Okay.
1: Okay. I I didn't want to think about that, but it's a lot. I think, um, so I did did a year of research here at Upstate with an oncology lab, and then I did an internship um, in internal medicine. I did three years of neurology. I did two years of neuro-oncology. So that's um, five, six, seven, 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 seven extra years on top of medical school.
0: Wow. Well, uh, it's really nice to know about what you're um, bringing to Upstate and what you have to offer, and uh, patients would be able to access um, the neuro oncology center through the Upstate Cancer Center, right?
1: Absolutely, absolutely. The the they have full access to our um, multidisciplinary clinic that we're building, which is like the brain tumor clinic. We're trying to um, promote that name. So it's easy for the patients to call and ask for the brain tumor clinic. I have the phone number if you need it.
0: Sure. What's the phone number?
1: So, yeah, so the the patients could call 315-464-3510, which is our cancer center. It's the multidisciplinary team, and they could call and ask for the brain tumor clinic.
0: Well, thank you so much to Dr. Ruham Nassani, the medical director of the neurooncology program at Upstate. I'm Amber Smith for Upstate's podcast and talk show, HealthLink On Air. What you need to know about heart failure next on Upstate's HealthLink On Air. From Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York, I'm Amber Smith. This is HealthLink on Air. Heart failure is a serious condition, but many people with heart failure manage their condition and are able to live full lives. Here to talk about what's important to know about heart failure is Natasha Zimitrowitz. She's a nurse who is Upstate's Heart Failure Data Coordinator and educator. Welcome to HealthLink on Air, Natasha. Thanks, Amber. I'm glad to be here. Well, let's begin with a definition. Um, heart failure doesn't necessarily mean the heart isn't working, right?
2: It just means basically that there's something wrong with your pump. So your heart works like a pump. It squeezes blood out to the body where it needs to go, and then it returns as your heart relaxes to fill back up with blood. So when we're talking about heart failure. The heart is not necessarily failing. There's just something wrong with the pump. It's usually either the squeeze or the relaxing of the heart.
0: So is this something that develops over time and affects mostly older people, or can this affect anyone?
2: There are several different forms that heart failure comes in. Um, Many of the heart failure patients that we see are chronic, meaning long-term heart failure patients. Um, And there's a lot of reasons why you get heart failure. Um, There's certain reasons why you would have what we call an acute or um, sporadic episode of heart failure that usually resolves. But I think today, for our purposes, we're going to talk about chronic heart failure um, because that's what we see mostly in our
0: community. And does it affect men and women equally?
2: It does. Um, There is a population, the African-American population is the highest risk. Because one of the reasons that people get heart failure is from long-standing high blood pressure. And that is a population that is at risk for high blood pressure. Um, so that is one of the causes. And um, one of the biggest causes is coronary artery disease.
0: So when you talk about high blood pressure, people who control high blood pressure or people who don't have high blood pressure, they have a lower risk for heart failure. Is at- that right?
2: Absolutely. And some people are prone to high blood pressure through genetics. um, But a lot of it can be managed with lifestyle change too. watching what you eat, um, especially um, eating low fat, low cholesterol and low sodium foods um, definitely can help control blood pressure.
0: Well, can you talk a little bit about the typical symptoms of heart failure? I'm curious about how it's usually discovered? Does it does it just turn up? during a routine medical exam? Or are there symptoms people need to be aware of?
2: Well, there's definitely textbook symptoms of heart failure. And unfortunately, by the time people end up coming to the hospital for heart failure, they're very short of breath and, and really having trouble breathing. Um, but if you know the signs and symptoms, you can catch it before you get to that point and we can manage it in the outpatient setting. So. When you have an issue with the squeeze or the relaxing of your heart, your body takes it as the fact that you don't have enough blood. You're either not squeezing out enough blood or you're not able to fill up your heart with enough, with enough blood. So your body gets in this mode and starts sending out all these chemical messages telling your body that you need more fluid. So that's what we are actually looking for, are signs of fluid overload. So. Typically fluid goes to three different places. One is your lungs, two is your belly, and three is the outside of your body. So I'm talking, I think jumping jacks, hands, legs, ankles, feet, okay? When we're talking about the lungs, sometimes people will notice that they're having trouble sleeping. So if you're laying down and on a typical night going to sleep, but you notice that you have to prop yourself up with some extra pillows, or even sometimes sleep in a recliner to breathe easier, that's a sign that you probably have fluid in your lungs and you want to call your doctor. Another sign that there's fluid in your lungs is sometimes people can go to sleep just fine, but in the middle of the night, they wake up gasping for air, short of breath. They have to sit up and catch their breath. Typically, it goes away after a few minutes, but you still want to call your provider in the morning because you probably have fluid in your lungs. And then another sign that most people would never, ever relate to fluid is a dry cough. So many people tell me that they could have a dry cough or they feel like they've got something stuck in their throat and it's just not coming out. So if you have a cough, but you're not sick, you have no fever, no sore throat, no runny nose, but you're still coughing, it's time to call the doctor because that could be fluid in your lungs.
0: You're right. That's something I would never think of a dry cough relating to fluid. Um, interesting. interesting.
2: Especially with your heart, you would think maybe it would be more of a lung thing. So, um, another place that uh, fluid goes, excuse me, is your belly. So, we want to think about things like your pants fitting too tight. Or, um, one thing that with your belly that people would never relate to your heart is a loss of appetite. So, if you're sitting down for a meal that typically you would normally eat the whole thing, but now you're filling up after sitting down and having only three or four bites that's a sign that there's fluid in your belly. There's not enough room for food. So you're not feeling as, you're feeling fuller quicker. You're not feeling as hungry as normal. You wanna call your doctor for that. And then the last place that fluid typically goes is that very outside of your body, your hands, your legs, your ankles, feet. Um, So if your fingers feel really tight or your knuckles or veins on your hands are disappearing, or today you're puttering around just fine in your shoes and tomorrow you put them on and they're too tight, it is definitely time to call the doctor. You're holding on to fluid and we need to nip it in the butt, take care of it right away. Um, and we can do that in an outpatient setting, sometimes even over the phone, and you don't end up coming to the emergency room.
0: So seeing like swollen ankles or, or hands, that, if, if I understand you correctly, that might happen later than some of those other symptoms, the, the cough or the belly accumulation? So
2: so actually, any of these can manifest at any time, but typically you can catch these symptoms before you become overtly short of breath where you're struggling and in distress and have to come to the emergency room. So we want to know these little signs that normally you wouldn't relate to your heart. We want to know these. So like I said before, we can nip it in the butt, Take care of it, outpatient, and you feel better. You get that fluid off at home, usually with a medication um, through urinating. It takes off that extra fluid. You feel better. You don't have to come to the hospital.
0: So, let me ask you: fluid retention could that is that always um, heart failure, or could it be something else?
2: There's other causes of fluid retention. Um, sometimes people have fluid retention if they have kidney issues. Um, But if you know the signs and symptoms of fluid overload from your heart, you can put these all together and understand that it's going to be probably your heart that really needs to get taken, um, get a look taken at.
0: So if someone listening to this um, has these symptoms, do should they just contact their regular doctor or do they need to find a cardiologist or uh, what, what should they do?
2: If you don't already have a heart doctor, you should definitely call your primary care physician. Let them know your signs and symptoms, and then they'll be able to guide you best from there. If you do have a heart doctor, absolutely let your heart doctor know. And there are certain doctors that have heart failure clinics. So you wanna let one of your heart failure nurses or nurse practitioners know if you're involved with one of those.
0: This is Upstate's Health Link on Air. I'm your host, Amber Smith, talking with Natasha Zimitrowitz. She's a nurse who's the heart failure data coordinator and educator at Upstate, and we're discussing what's most important to know about heart failure. Well, I'd like to ask you how is heart failure diagnosed? Once you get to the doctor, what are the tests that are are you're likely to face? Well, one of
2: the things that we say here in the hospital is that. Heart failure can be a clinical diagnosis, meaning there may not be anything definitive in testing, but there's a lot of different things that point us to the direction. Uh, One definitive test is an echocardiogram. That's an ultrasound of your heart. So just like when you're pregnant and they put jelly on your belly, they put a little jelly on your chest and take a picture of your heart. It shows them how the walls of your heart are moving, how your valves are working, and how the squeeze of your heart is doing. It also can look at the relaxation of your heart and make sure that it's functioning properly. So that could be one of the ways that you do diagnose heart failure. Sometimes people come into the hospital though, and their echocardiogram looks okay, but by all other signs, they are in heart failure. So they will be treated as heart failure patients.
0: So do you either have heart failure or you don't have heart failure, or is it a gradient?
2: I think that most of the patients I see, many of them anyways, feel that their heart failure was a, an, what we call an acute episode or a one-time thing. They had heart failure, they went to the hospital, they got the fluid off, they feel better, and now it's gone. But what people don't understand is that this is a chronic disease and it needs needs to be managed over a period of time. Heart failure can get better. Um, We have what we call guideline-directed medical therapy uh, through the American Heart Association and um, the American College of Cardiology both got together and put the guidelines together for a medication regimen for these patients through years and years, decades of trials of thousands of patients that prove that certain medications will increase your cardiac function, increase your length of life, and decrease hospital readmission.
0: So how do you describe ejection fraction?
2: So take the first word, ejection. The first part of that is eject. So basically, It's the squeeze of your heart. It's the amount of blood, excuse me, the percentage of blood that is ejected with each heartbeat. Normal is about 50 to 60%. Um, Anything below that, we would consider reduced ejection fraction. Um, And anything over 50% that's in a heart failure patient, we would call that heart failure with preserved ejection fraction. So when you're looking at a reduced ejection fraction, less than 50%, there's something going on with the squeeze of your heart. So we have to figure out why it's happening and treat the cause. If you have a preserved ejection fraction greater than 50%, that means that there's something going on with the relaxing of your heart. A lot of times when we see that and we see many patients with preserved ejection fraction, we're talking about your muscle getting bigger. So if you think of a bicep and you're working your bicep out, your bicep is gonna get bigger, it's gonna get thicker. Well, same with your heart. If your heart, say for instance, working hard through high blood pressure over a long period of time, it's gotta push and work so hard through that pressure system to get the blood to where it needs to go. In turn, it's working itself out and it's getting bigger and thicker. That means it's not able to relax as well. Also, the walls of your heart are getting thicker, meaning there's getting less space inside for blood to actually fill.
0: Well, let me ask you to tell us about the heart failure services at Upstate and how a person would go about, how do they make contact
2: Well, you can certainly call um, University Cardiology at 90 Presidential Plaza. That's where our main offices are. But we have many satellite offices. We have great providers. We do also have a heart failure clinic um, with heart failure nurses at University Cardiology at Upstate Healthcare Center. Inpatient, you can ask if you're inpatient and you want to talk to somebody, you can ask any of your nurses. They know how to get a hold of us. Um, and we're on through the operating system as well.
0: Well, I know the heart failure team at Upstate recently earned an award from the American Heart Association. Can you tell us what that was?
2: Absolutely, we've been working very hard. Um, We did receive the American Heart Association Gold Plus Award for Heart Failure Care. Uh, We also received a Target Diabetes Honor Roll Award. Um, There are medications for diabetics that are proven to help with heart failure. And we have proven that most of our patients with diabetes are able to take those medications and are being prescribed those medications.
0: We'll be right back with more about heart failure. You're listening to Upstate's Health Link on Air. Upstate's HealthLink on air. I'm your host Amber Smith, talking with Nurse Natasha Zemitrowitz about heart failure. She's the heart failure data coordinator and educator at Upstate. So we've talked about um, you've done a really good job of describing heart failure, but I wonder about the underlying cause. Is do we know? Is it a genetic thing? If your parents had it, you're likely to have it. Is there some sort of connection?
2: Sure. Um, we could take my. Um, I have a family member, for instance, who has done everything right all his life. Low sodium, low fat diet, never smoked, exercised, and ended up having to have a quadruple bypass surgery. Um, And that was just par for the course for the men in that family. Um, So definitely it can be familial, but a lot of it could be lifestyle. We see a lot of patients coming in with heart failure from alcoholism and addiction. We see uh, people coming in because they had a virus when they were a child and now it's manifesting as heart failure later on in life. Um, We definitely see our high blood pressure, chronic high blood pressure patients that have a hard time managing their blood pressure. They end up sometimes being heart failure patients and certainly um, coronary artery disease. So that's kind of like a junking up of your vessels inside, Um, whether it be cholesterol or calcium buildup. When you have coronary artery disease you're getting lack of blood flow to your heart and that's never good for your heart cells.
0: So if somebody has a family history of, of heart disease or uh, heart failure, are there things that that person should do to reduce their risk?
2: Absolutely. Um, One of them definitely would be for lifestyle changes on not smoking, not smoking cigarettes, um, not drinking too much alcohol, watching your weight and watching the intake of food, making sure that it's healthy for your body. Um, One of our cardiologists likes to say, if it ain't from the ground, don't put it down. So definitely when you're thinking about food choices, you wanna think um, fresh fruits, fresh vegetables, um, staying away from really high preservative, high salt things like canned foods is very important as well. And of course, daily exercise. It's always good to keep moving. Our bodies were built to move, so you wanna keep them moving.
0: Well, I'd like to ask you about treatment options. For someone who does get a diagnosis of heart failure, are there medications?
2: There are definitely medications. Um, Earlier, I had talked about heart failure with reduced ejection fraction, meaning a problem with the squeeze of your heart. We know that through decades of thousands of patients, research has shown to increase cardiac function, help with heart failure, and even in conjunction with other therapies, such as um, special pacemakers that can be placed uh, once you're on a certain amount of medication for a certain amount of time, you can qualify to have something like a pacemaker. Um, there's certainly definitely advanced therapies that go beyond a pacemaker, such as um, what we call ventricular assist devices. They actually get implanted and do the squeeze, um, the work. Of the heart for you it actually squeezes your heart for you so you get better blood out making you feel better um, and of course last but not least we do have um heart transplant as well um in, cent- in the central new york region um we do have a hospital who's doing actually a total artificial heart as well which is really cool technology has brought us a long way um and really people can be treated for heart failure
0: today how often does someone with heart failure need to see their doctor
2: it depends on where they're at. Um, there's many stages of heart failure and um, we look at how the patient is feeling. So if they're feeling good and their blood pressure is controlled and they're watching their diet, they may only need to make routine annual visits with their doctor. If there's a patient who's really struggling and they've had heart failure for a long time and you know it hasn't gotten better, it's just gotten worse, um, those patients could come to our clinic and get Um, IV diuretics. So instead of taking a water pill at home, they get the really strong IV form of medication and they're in there sometimes two to three times a week. The benefit of that is that we found ways like that to keep you out of the hospital so that you can enjoy some of your life and keep living the way that you want Sometimes it's, you know, coming into the clinic a couple times for just a couple weeks, and we get your medication adjusted, and then you're feeling better, and then we can go back to normal visits.
0: Do patients with heart failure ever get referred for cardiac rehabilitation?
2: Yes. Unfortunately, insurance at this time only pays for um, the heart failure with reduced ejection fraction. I know that there's a lot of interest in our preserved ejection fraction patients, getting cardiac rehab. And there's a lot of hospitals across the nation that are trialing that. Um, So hopefully the results will be in soon and we'll have um, a better understanding of how exercise plays with heart failure with preserved ejection fraction. But we do know altogether exercise helps for everybody.
0: Even if it's walking and doing lower intensity things?
2: Walking is one of the safest activities you can do. Just remember, however far you walk is how much you need to walk back.
0: <laughs> <laughs> good I, good point. Now, we've talked a little about healthy living and how important that is to not smoke, to get exercise. Um, what about, does someone with heart failure have to track their fluid intake? Do they have to be very precise about that or...?
2: If it's not a doctor's order, and you have maybe been newly diagnosed and um, are able to start medications and start managing, typically we tell patients, uh, if you think about a two liter of Pepsi, don't drink more than that amount in a day. Um, It's a really great thing to watch your weight because besides all of those symptoms we talked about earlier, you can step on a scale one morning and say you are 150 pounds. And then the next morning you step on the scale and you're 153 pounds. Fluid weighs a ton more than food does. We're gonna know that three pounds in 24 hours is fluid buildup. And sometimes we see it in your weight before you even feel it in your body. So it's definitely important to track weight if you do have heart failure. So the rule of thumb is three pounds in one day or five pounds in one week. That's the thing about weight. You wanna write it down because tomorrow you won't have to remember what you weighed today. And two, you may not gain two or three pounds in a day, but if you look back at a week's worth of time, you can actually catch a trend. So say you're gaining Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, a pound every day, we need to be really careful with what we're eating. We need to be on top of our weights because if you gain that extra pound the next day, we're definitely heading in the wrong direction and we need to let a doctor know.
0: What about limiting or avoiding alcohol and caffeine? Why is that a recommendation?
2: Well, one of the causes of heart failure can be a very fast high heart rate. So consuming a lot of caffeine and keeping your heart rate high is never a good thing. Um, So we typically tell our heart patients that a cup of coffee in the morning is okay, and pretty much nothing beyond that. Just like the caffeine and the high heart rate, alcohol, and it's called alcoholic cardiomyopathy, um it's a it's a reason for heart failure and those patients usually have a very dilated um almost floppy heart it doesn't have a good squeeze so you definitely want to stay a, away from too much alcohol um i think the new recommendations are even for men just one alcoholic drink a day and no more than that
0: what about sexual activity are there restrictions on people with heart failure
2: Well, I've had this question asked a lot. Um, You definitely want to talk to a provider and be open. Um, You know, having sexual intercourse is a part of human nature, and it's something that everybody, you know, gets around to. And you want to talk to your provider about it and get their opinion. But what we would always tell our cardiac surgery patients or our heart attack patients is if you can walk a flight of stairs and feel okay, it's probably safe. Just remember, everybody's lived in their own body long enough to know something's not right. If you have a gut feeling and you think something is wrong, tell somebody. Talk about it so we can figure it out.
0: Well, we've talked about um, managing weight and being aware of uh, your weight to see if you've retained water. Um, In terms of diet, do people with heart failure have to follow like low sodium or low potassium? Is there, is there a diet for a heart failure patient?
2: Yes. So typically it, it will be a low salt diet is what we focus most on. If you go back to when I was explaining how fluid is built up in your body, it's that chemical message that your body's sending, telling your body that you don't have enough blood in your vessels, so you need more fluid. Well, the way our body does that and those chemical messages that are being sent are telling our body to already hold on to sodium and fluid because sodium sucks fluid back in from places where it can get it from. So when we add more sodium to that within our food, which everything has salt in it, even one stock of celery has about 70 milligrams of salt. So it's really important that people get to know their label reading, um, know what's in their food, when you add that salt on top of it, it's like a fire fire hose going to your heart, and your heart just can't take it. That's when the fluid starts building up, and you start not feeling well.
0: Are there certain foods that are good for heart failure patients to eat or to start, you know, eating regularly? Are are there foods that work as a diuretic to help you reduce fluid retention? Or
2: we don't necessarily offer any encouragement about foods for diuretics. Um, A lot of our heart patients are on blood thinners, so you have to be careful about your dark leafy greens. Um, But other than that, like I said, our cardiology says if it's from the ground, it's good to put it down. So if it's fresh or frozen even, um, that's better than anything canned. I think an average can of green beans has about 1,250 milligrams of sodium. And the American Heart Association suggests 2,000 or less in a day. And uh, I think it was a couple months ago I had uh, one can of Campbell's low-sodium chicken noodle soup, and it had over 1,400 milligrams of sodium. So even if something says low-sodium, look at your label. You really want to know what you're putting in in your body. Everybody puts preservatives and salt in the food to keep it, you know, a longer shelf life so they can sell it. Um, So just be careful and read your labels
0: so, let's talk about the outlook for someone who gets a diagnosis of heart failure and is in treatment. Um, how long can someone live in heart failure?
2: It's a hard question to answer because it depends on the medication, um, the patient's ability to or resources to get the education needed to be able to manage this outside on their own um, to know about you know the weights and the symptoms. So a lot of people lack resources to get that information or get proper access to healthcare. If we get those people in our sites, we make sure that we try to get rid of those, um, you know, financial insecurities, healthcare barriers, try to get them into the doctor, get them on the proper medication, um, make sure that they understand how to take their medication. That certainly helps prolong life and um, can improve your cardiac function overall. I've had patients who come in and have an ejection fraction of 30%, um, which is half of what normal is. We get them on the right medications, maybe six months down the road, there's a little improvement, so we decide to put a pacemaker in to improve that even more, and they're back up to 55% the next year. So it certainly depends on the patient. A typical prognosis would be about five years, but we have patients who have the medications and the advanced therapies who have been around for decades. So it really makes a difference on your care and how well you can manage the disease.
0: If you have heart failure, does it affect the job? Like if you're still working, um, does it affect your ability to work or does it affect uh, where you live or how you live?
2: I think, Heart failure can affect your life in every way possible. Um, It can be a big source of depression because there's a lot of lifestyle changes that come with it. But that being said, if you have the opportunities around you and the resources, we can help with that and and help increase your quality of life and get you back to work. I have heart failure patients, yes, who are working full-time jobs. I have a gentleman who came in, didn't know he had heart failure, and he was a moving guy at a furniture company. So wow. the the way he knew was he was getting short of breath at work. So we got the fluid off of him. We got him on the correct medication and adjusted his meds so that his blood pressure was good. And he was able to return to work.
0: So just having this diagnosis, you're not necessarily considered disabled. There's people working, right?
2: Absolutely. Um, Really, we're talking more end-stage heart failure or a severely reduced ejection fraction, 25%, um, to where you know, you're know you short of breath getting dressed. That is usually a very um, end-stage um, position to be in. And at that point, you probably would have had heart failure for many, many years. Um, and typically, those are the patients that we see that can't handle their medications anymore because of low blood pressure and, um, you know, are having a hard time following the diet, having a hard time following the medication regimen, Um, but most of our patients do pretty well.
0: Well, with this condition, does it make a person prone to other medical problems? Just because you have heart failure, are you more prone to infections or other conditions?
2: Certainly, our heart failure patients do have um, a lot of comorbidities usually, Um, things like diabetes is a big one. Um, We also have patients who come in a lot of times with pneumonia or the flu, so definitely make sure you're getting vaccinated. Um, Anybody above the age of 18 with heart failure should have their pneumococcal vaccine, so you should speak to your provider about that, not just after the age of 65, but when you're diagnosed, you should have it.
0: And are there red flags that a person with heart failure needs to be aware of that, that tell them you, you need to get to the hospital?
2: Absolutely. Any shortness of breath um, that's not going away with rest or um, so we have a lot of times our, our heart failure patients have COPD. So if your rescue inhaler is not working, it's possibly not the COPD and it could be your heart failure. You need to get to the hospital for help. Um, and we also tell people with any chest pain that doesn't resolve with rest, um, you need to call 911. So those would be the, the big red flags right there. But really, we teach pac- patients that their red flag symptoms are the signs and symptoms we discussed earlier. Those are red flags to call your doctor right away so you don't end up in the hospital. And that's that, um, that dry cough or a feeling like you have something stuck in your throat that is trying to lay down and go to sleep at night, but you're propping yourself up with extra pillows um, waking up in the middle of the night short of breath and you have to sit up to catch your breath, uh, losing your appetite or getting full really quickly, your pants not fitting and your belly feeling really um, tight and hard. That's a sign that there's fluid. And of course, in your extremities, your legs, uh, your legs, ankles, feet. So if your shoes are fine today and tomorrow they're tight, you need to call your doctor. If You're pulling your socks off and there's a huge indent and it's usually not that big. You're probably holding onto some fluid and you need to call the doctor. <laughs>
0: Uh, well, this has been very informative, and I can see exactly why you're in education. This has been very helpful. Thank you, Thank you to nurse Natasha Zimitrowitz. She's a heart failure coordinator and educator at Upstate. I'm Amber Smith for Upstate's podcast and talk show, HealthLink on Air. And now, Deirdre Nealon, editor of Upstate Medical University's literary and visual arts journal, The Healing Muse, with this week's selection.
3: We received a beautiful poem about gratitude from poet Gloria Heffernan. Her collection, What the Gratitude List Said to the Bucket List, appeared just last year. I find this poem particularly apt these days as our frustrations and fears threaten to overwhelm our kindness. Here is her poem, Fused. I could not hear the blood entering my vein one drop at a time all night long. Four pints, four donors, four faces I would never see, hands I would never touch. I could not hear their voices, the languages they spoke, the prayers they prayed. I did not know what car they drove or who they voted for or why but I knew I would die without them. I knew the rupture in my body would only be healed because four strangers said yes. And now, I cannot look at the woman in the grocery store or the man who cut me off in traffic or the people online at the voting booth without wondering, did you save my life?
0: This has been Upstate's HealthLink on Air, brought to you each week by Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York. Next week on HealthLink on Air: Critical Care Neurosurgery, Common Sports Injuries, and Research About Bias in Teaching. If you missed any of today's show or for more consumer health podcasts, visit our website at healthlinkonair.org or do a podcast search for the phrase HealthLink on Air. Upstate's HealthLink on Air is produced by Jim Howe, with sound engineering by Stephen Shaw. This is your host, Amber Smith, thanking you for listening.